Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Are you looking for a community of like-minded folks to connect with on your path of healing, growth, and transformation? Starting December 1st, I'll be facilitating a bi-weekly online group to offer support for anyone on their medicine path. Whether you are a new or experienced psychedelic explorer, a yoga or meditation practitioner, or simply curious about how these practices can support embodied awakening and personal transformation, I invite you to join us every other Sunday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for a practice, inquiry, and integration circle. Every gathering will include some kind of somatic breathwork or meditation practice, group sharing, and compassionate inquiry held in a safe, respectful, and confidential container intended to support each individual's process of insight, integration, and alignment. This circle will be open to all new and current Medicine Path Patreon subscribers at the $10 level. To sign up, please visit patreon.com forward slash medicinepath and click become a patron. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I speak with visionary artist Max Gimblet. Max was born in 1935 in New Zealand and moved to New York City in the 1970s, where he's maintained a studio ever since. He's one of New Zealand's most recognized painters and continues to exhibit regularly in the U.S. and throughout New Zealand. He's well represented in major collections around the world, most significantly in the permanent collection of the Guggenheim and Museum of Modern Art in New York, the Whitney Museum of Modern Art, and the National Galleries in Washington, D.C. and Melbourne, Australia. Max is known for his vibrant gestural style, influenced by Zen calligraphy and painters like William de Kooning, and for his unconventional canvases, particularly his signature quatrefoil shape, which has both Eastern and Western spiritual significance. 
A longtime Buddhist practitioner, Max took his vows as a Rinzai Zen priest in 2006. I met with Max at his loft in Soho, New York City, on a crisp, sunny afternoon, surrounded by his incredible art and nourished by his warm and generous manner. I felt immediately at ease with Max, and we had a far-reaching conversation that touched on life, art, spiritual practice, growing up in New Zealand, and traveling to Canada in the 1960s where he met his wife Barbara, who inspired him to become an artist and supported him through the lean years. I left that afternoon feeling inspired and renewed with a little more faith that if we dedicate ourselves to our life's work and pursue it with focus and determination, we just might succeed in bringing a little more beauty into the world. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider subscribing and leaving a review or providing financial support by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. Membership starts at just $2 a month, giving you early access to unedited interviews like this one. At the $5 and $10 levels, you'll get access to hours of yoga practice resources and the new online group that meets every other Sunday with the intention of providing accessible support and community for anyone on their medicine path of healing, growth, and transformation. Now, please sit back and enjoy this conversation with Max Gimblet on The Medicine Path. So I'm sitting here with Max Gimblet in his studio. Uh, what neighborhood would you call this, Max? It's Soho. In Soho. Yeah, it's kind of this um, classic New York loft that uh, I've only ever seen in movies. Uh, so it's a thrill for me to actually be here in a real artist's studio. And to uh, have you show me around has been a real treat. So thanks for that. You're welcome. Now, when uh, we first met, you called yourself a spiritual painter. Now, what does that mean? And I think later you said that all art is spiritual. Can you talk a little bit about that and uh, if that was there from the beginning for you? Well, um, I'm a Presbyterian Church of Scotland child, brought up in a very wonderful church in Auckland, New Zealand, St. David's with a magnificent minister, Owen Barrick Wanneth. Um, so I was uh, delighted to be in Sunday school and Bible class, and I still have my Sunday school Bible they gave me when I was seven years old. And um, so I use the church and the structure in the church sort of against some of the turmoil that was in my house. There was quite a lot of turmoil in my house. Um, I was an only child. My father died when I was my father died when he, when I was ten, so I was brought up by a mother and an aunt, matriarchal line. And um, you know, I think art is cultural and it's spiritual, in that the world's wisdom, in part, resides in it, and one can study various cultures and. Um, pursuits and spiritual paths and I've undergone quite a few 
Like I've been to India twice. I'm going again next November. I'm very influenced by Indian gurus. I've had three. Uh, I'm an ordained Zen monk in 2006. So I studied koans for 30 years before that. I've made books about koans, Renzai koans. So I've painted the quatrefoil, which is a, amongst other things, a medieval cathedral church window shape, and it's often carved on the pews. It was in the pews of my childhood church. Um, now, can you explain the motif of the quatrefoil? You gave me a great explanation earlier yeah, that I yeah. found fascinating. Well, um, it came to me in a dream in 1983, and it appeared in the dream, and it spoke, and it said, paint me and I'll heal you. So I immediately ordered six 90-inch quatrefoils from a carpenter and stretched them up and painted them and looked at them and thought, this is going to be difficult. This is a Eucharist no one would swallow. This is going to be difficult. And I took them to New Zealand, and lo and behold, uh, three of them were collected in the first couple of weeks in the exhibition. And I was off and running. So the quatrefoil is about quaternity. It's about four. And uh, my understanding of a Trinitarian age, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, turned into a quaternity around 1950 for the Catholics when they ascended Mary, if I've got that right. A lot of my stories are in part made up. And, uh, you know, I'm a high school dropout. I'm autodidact. So I've just added on a lot of stories, and I'm a storyteller. So the, um, the quatrefoil, weirdly enough, doesn't seem to be painted by anybody else. I mean... If there's anybody else that re sees this or reads this, they can email me and tell me they're painting it. But I find it very odd that it's not being painted by a number of people. It doesn't appear to be. And I paint it um, out of El Cabusier's Modular Man. I paint the face, the half body, the full body, the hanging monumental Christ crucified scales of the quatrefoil. Mm. So um, it is uh, curvilinear. That means it's the female cross. Mm. It's anima. It's the lady of the lake. Uh, yeah, you, you talked uh, about the... breasts and buttocks. It's, you know, it's, it's, very, it's very much of a uh, anima sort of mothering image. Mm. And when you first described the quatrefoil to me, uh, you described it as a kind of portal to a fifth dimension. Can you speak about that? Well, I think all painting is uh, endeavoring to get into the fifth dimension. All of mine is. And uh, Bill de Kooning taught me to paint on the plane in the fourth dimension forward of the primary plane. So you're not actually painting on the plane of the painting, you're painting in the air. And with a bit of luck, uh, there's a lot of volume in painting, there's a lot of depth in painting. Um, with a bit of luck, you're touching the fifth dimension. And I think... Uh, the quaternity, the Trinitarian and the quaternity leads to the, what I call the transcendental fifth. And I think there's a level of consciousness that's raising in the world. And I feel like it's uh, sky high when it comes to Indian gurus. And they're at once a human being and they're a guru. And if they can reach that, it means that the rest of us can reach for it. Mm. Whether we get there or not is another story. But um, th there's definitely a, a journey in consciousness that is growing.
Mm. How do you understand the fifth dimension? What is it? Well, it's invisible. It's uh, it can't be touched by my hands. It's um, forward of the plane of the, you know, the paintings in three dimensions. But when you look into the volume of it, you sense the fourth dimension, the depth. Mm. And the fifth dimension seems to be forward of that. Um, I don't know. It feels something like a space shot. It feels like going up to the moon in a rocket. You know. It's, it's pretty much out of reach, but it's something you can read about, write about, talk about, and incorporate into your painting and drawing with trust and sincerity and love as best you can. Mm. But I mean, a lot of people are looking at your work and interpreting it, and it's very interesting to hear other people's interpretations and the people I respect around painting are the people that pause and look at the painting for quite a while and enter it rather than just sort of walk past it pretty much like a shopper. Hmm. Like so time might help us get to the fifth element like pausing and really looking deeply. Absolutely, yeah. And um, you know there's eight and a half billion of us it's never static, there's always movement and growth. So when, you know, you mentioned that the quatrefoil came to you in a dream and uh, said it would heal you, can you talk about how working with this shape has helped to heal? Well, it's given me a sense of my identity, a sense of myself. It's given me something that people can respond to and talk to me about. Mm. It's given me something that people want to live with in their homes and in museums. Its it's curvilinear nature is totally satisfying to me because I found that um, rectangles and squares were in large part, in my terms, coming from doorways and windows and coming from right-angled architecture, which strikes me as pretty patriarchal and um, kind of uh, aggressive, over-containing, you know, boxy. um, Limiting. Limiting, limiting, certainly limiting me. So, um, I mean, I was brought up in a culture where I played a lot of rugby and it was very tough and very hard and it was anything but female. But later on, uh, I fell in love with Barbara and we've been together 55 years and her anima uh, and her animus has been a, a great aid to me. And I have a studio manager who's been with me 20 years since he was 19 He's uh, fantastic. And I have uh, an art dealer in New Zealand that I've been with 31 years. So I believe in loyalty. I believe in uh, the apprenticeship apprenticeship system. I believe in learning. I believe that everybody needs some strong teachers. Without a strong teacher, you're sort of nowhere. I mean, Mm. you know, you're failing without a strong teacher. So... Part of my life as a only child and an autodidact has been to collect teachers. And, uh, you know, my 
big guru for many, many years was Krishnamurti, mm. who was just magnificent. And someone once invited me to meet him, and I said, no, I don't need to. Mm. I've got a photograph of him. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, you know, you started out as a Protestant and had a deep connection to the church. You go to Krishnamurti, who's saying, question everything, and all of the spiritual leaders are trying to bamboozle you. <laughs> and you end up back in another religion, Buddhism. What was your introduction to Buddhism? Was there a teacher who grabbed you? or When and how did you get interested in Buddhism? Some, I don't remember how it happened. I think there were, uh, oh yes, Kenneth Patchen in uh, San Francisco. His poetry was illustrated, demonstrated by his ink drawings. They were on a page opposite the poem. And uh, I was very impressed by those. And I was in the main influenced by Matisse and school of American masters like de Kooning and Pollock. So when I got to Bloomington, Indiana, where my wife got her PhD in folklore and mythology and anthropology, we were in Bloomington three years and I remember, I had a big studio and I remember the first year uh, doing some Matisse-based ink drawings and suddenly, suddenly, they were Japanese calligraphy mm. uh, um, influenced. And then I started to realize by looking in books, there were Japanese masters that I was being taught by and I imagined psychically, I imagined they were coming to the studio and actually being with me. And that's been my practice, my tradition when I have a teacher is that they come to me. I mean, particularly if they've left their body, they're totally available. Um, so uh, I don't really need to make a pilgrimage to them, I've got them. Mm. So Japanese calligraphy brought along Buddhism and then somehow or other, I don't remember how, I got a book of Zen koans and started studying them and I did like, I don't know, 20 or 25 years of reading Zen koans and I actually remember hundreds of them. Yeah. And my teacher, um, Great Dragon, in San Francisco gave me my personal koan, which is, uh, at every step, the pure wind rises. Say it again. At every step, the pure wind rises. Hmm. And Hakuin, one of the greatest Japanese monks and calligraphers, taught from the sound of one hand. And I teach from what was your face before your face in your mother's womb. Hmm. And I once said to my uh, studio manager, Matt Jones, why don't you look that up on the uh, computer and see who's, who, who, who invented that koan or where did it come from? He, he looked at me and he looked it up and looked at me and he said, Max Gimblet. <laughs> 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 Which is, you know, totally satisfying. <laughs> yeah, right. Kind of amazing that uh, you're going for Matisse ended up at something like Japanese calligraphy, and that was the doorway into Zen Buddhism. And you were telling me earlier that you were ordained as a Zen monk in 2006, so quite some time later, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, why did you decide to eventually become ordained? Well, it's a simple story. 
I had, had, an, had an opening at uh, a very good gallery in San Francisco, Cheryl Haynes Gallery, Haynes Gallery, and two Zen monks came to the opening, and they were in full-length robes. I mean, they were real monks. And uh, one of them looked at me and said, why don't you come to the Zendo and have a cup of tea? And I said, okay. And uh, he was a great dragon. I went to the Zendo, we had a cup of tea, and he said, would you like to do some calligraphy with me? And I said, sure. <laughs> he took me into his kitchen, and he had a calligraphy set up, and his calligraphy was actually pretty good. So we did some together, and he looked at me and said, you're my calligraphy teacher. <laughs> and I looked at him and said, well, you're my Zen teacher. And then he said, would you give us some money? So I gave them a few hundred dollars. And then he said to me, uh, would you like a Zen name? And I said, yes. And he said, you are uh, Kenzu Haku. I'm, I'm getting it wrong. Um, I'll, it'll come to me in a moment. It means um, diamond brush awakened heart. Uh, it'll come to me. Um, and then he said, would you like to take your vows? And I said, yes. So I studied for about a year and took my vows. But that reminds me of Henry Miller's short story. Henry Miller had a very big influence on me. Henry Miller's years in Paris, he was very poor. He was writing The Tropic of Cancer and other books. And an insurance man got into his uh, room and tried to sell him an insurance. And every time the insurance man said a sum of money, Henry just said yes. And the insurance man twigged when they were up to about three or four million that Henry didn't have a cent. So I just said, I said yes to everything he asked me. Hmm. It was as simple as that. But I mean, it was, it's been extremely satisfying. Um, but I remain an ecumenical person. I mean, I'm as interested in Christianity as I am in Zen. And I've been living in a, Jewish family for 55 years, you know, mm. so it goes. Yeah. Um, is there anything that's come from uh, taking those vows that surprised you that you didn't expect? Well, I like taking vows. I took my wedding vows, and uh, I like loyalty, and I like trust, and I like the truth. So vows are good for me. Um, I was in the New Zealand Army for three years as national service. I don't know that I took any vows, but I took the army period fairly seriously. And um, after two years of high school, my mother took me out of high school to put me in a job. I went to night school and got a uh, money banking and finance degree in the Associate of the New Zealand Institute of Management. And uh, last year, I got my second honorary doctorate in New Zealand, and it was from Auckland University of Technology. And they had taken over the Seddon Memorial Technical College where I went to night school. So I've become their oldest living alumni. Hmm. But I, di I didn't get the honorary doctorate because of that. I got the honorary doctorate for my services to art. Hmm. Not bad for a high school dropout? Not bad. <laughs> Not bad. Now, I wonder... Uh, if you could talk a little bit about your process mm -hmm. when you're doing these uh, brush paintings. Um, we're sitting in front of them, and uh, I'm going to put some photos of them on the posting for this interview because uh, if people haven't seen them, they, I would really like them to see them. There's just so much life in them. 
And uh, I would like you, if you could, to talk about your process and how the painting is itself a spiritual practice. Well, I paint uh, in layers, and I paint in dimensions, and I paint with transparencies, and I paint with my emotions and feelings, and I don't paint with my intellect and my mind. So I have uh, methods or procedures, and I paint with one or two assistants who mix the colors, and we discuss colors together, and I do all the painting. But um, what I experience as an intuitive extroverted intuitive, which I am, is I mention a color and I fill up with the color and the color fills my entire body and the color tends to come out my fingertips, out through my arm. And, and so the color is um, a reality and it's expressing something that I don't understand at the time, but I'm going to understand later. But most of my paintings are at least four, five, six colors intermingling. And then, of course, they get precious metals gilded on the top of them, about half of them. And gold is consciousness, and silver is the unconscious, and copper is the earth, and uh, so on. So, and also, they're ancient materials. But... Um, it's about form and gesture. I'm a gesture painter. So uh, I incorporate modern dance, 20th century dance in my paintings. And I have them hung at a certain height off the floor that has to do with the body. And from Jasper Johns, I learned about gravity. Paint get, runs down, so you have gravity to deal with. And uh, paint, you know, the face, the half body, the full body, and the monumental. And um, paintings situate themselves in people's collections above a table or a chair, or they force the furniture out in front of them into the room if the painting's big enough and the wall's high enough. Mm. Um, and I paint uh, quatrefoils and circles and squares and rectangles. And I've painted six or seven shapes in my 55 years. And uh, I painted sort of pyramids and step towers and triangles. And can, can you talk about that moment before the brush touches the plane, the canvas? Mm -hmm. What's going on for you in that moment? Well, there's, a, there's an emptiness, there's a stillness. Um, there's no thinking. And I, I relate painting to uh, making love. You know, I mean, it's not a time to be thinking. It's not a time to be calculating. It's not a time to be intellectual. It's a time to be giving and happy and loving and touching. And so um, I go empty. But the gesture painting is, uh, you know, I was an athlete in growing up. I was a rugby player and I played cricket and I played uh, boxed and uh, I wasn't a runner, but... Uh, I sort of feel that one of my lives I was a poinsettia. Like if a ball goes past, I just automatically chase it. <laughs> I chase balls, you know. So I do that automatically. So chasing the brush across the canvas. Of course, I use, amongst other things, Chinese calligraphy brushes made of horsehair. I've got 200 of them. Um, they get washed out and used again and again. Some of them are huge. Um, you were saying that you actually use... Uh 
floor mops sometimes. I, for I the use, big pieces. Yeah, the big circles. And some of the rectangles, I use floor mops. Yeah, cleaning floor mops. New ones, of course, and a bucket of paint. And I, that painting is down flat. The bulk of my painting is up on the wall. So it's got gravity in, involved. It's mm -hmm. got drips and runs. Um, and uh, the idea is when I've painted it, that a couple of assistants get it to the floor and fat, flat pretty fast. Because the longer the drip goes on, the more time slows down for me. I mean, that wouldn't be true of some other painters, but it's true of my work. Mm. So I don't like big, long, deep, slow uh, drips. But in my paperworks and my inks, because ink is instant color, you get an ink palette by buying all the colors in two or three brands. You get hundreds of inks, which you only have to open up and put into a little plastic cup and you have a brush and you're off and running. Mm. So um, I'm going to Poland in uh, next, today week, next Saturday, and I'm taking with me, you know, 50 colored ink pens to draw with. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, we talked about that moment um, before you make the gesture. How do you empty yourself out? Is that something that uh, you have a practice that you go to, or what's that like for you? Well, it may be a practice, but it's uh, fairly unconscious and fairly untrained. See, I've been painting 55 years. So when I think of my first few paintings, um, you know, I, I invented, that's the heat in the pipes. Okay. I invented um, gesture painting out of Bill de Kooning, but I would mix up some oil paint in a coffee can and put a house painter's brush in it and look at the canvas and scream and run at the canvas and punch the canvas and... I thought I was doing a Zen painting, you know, which I was actually. So um, the emptiness is something like prayer. It's something like being in the Zendo or being in church, and it's not so mu not so much a meditation, but it's like just getting rid of m mental activity, um, getting rid of thinking, not having a program, letting the body dictate the movement the size of the brush, the quality of paint in the brush, particularly the color. And, uh, you, you know, you brush differently on a circle than you would on a rectangle than you would on a quatrefoil. So it's, it's sort of an emptying out. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's not done... Con I mean, at this point, because I've been painting 55 years, it's sort of... Uh, it's a given. It's sort of automatic. I don't question it. I just do it. Almost like um, you've trained your mind or your body that when you're maybe even holding the tool, it's just time, you know, and it knows it's time. Now, you talked yeah. about uh, connecting to this, this center in your body, the dantian, the lower belly. Can you talk about that as, uh, and what that means mm -hmm. to you and to the painting? Well, my painting practice comes from my sumai ink drawing. So I have black Japanese... Uh, ink and I have a very opaque and matte and I have uh, Thai garden, Thailand beautiful paper, handmade paper and I have Chinese calligraphy brushes and um, my major motif is the Enso is the circle and um, it's done without thinking and it's done from the lower 
stomach. It's done without identity. It, uh, there is one great circle in every 15 that I do. It took me about 15 or 20 years to get the circle into a circle. It used to be an oval or it used to be squashed on one side. Um, there's no beginning or an end. I'm right-handed, so I paint from the right to the left. And I believe maybe, maybe that Asians paint from the left to the right, maybe. So uh, it's a loaded brush in and unloaded brush out. The important thing is the in and the out and the journey in between. Of course, it's happening very fast. And often I do 30 or 40 of these in, I don't know, an hour and a half or something. I haven't timed myself. I have assistants taking them away and bringing fresh pieces of paper. And then we edit them. We keep, you know, two-thirds of them. And uh, they go into books and they go into exhibitions and they go into storage and all of it will come out at some later time. But um, my ink calligraphy has had a full range to it and recently, a few years ago, I did Ox Herding with Lewis Hyde and we're going to publish a book about it next year and that's the 12 steps of Ox Herding, ancient Chinese text and uh, they're abstract and figural. So, I mean, I had a feeling as a autodidact, self-taught painter at the very beginning that if I was going to be a painter, I need to be able to catch a person's likeness. So I got a book called uh, The Natural Way to Draw by Nicolaitis, and it became my, my Bible. And I learned to catch a likeness, so I could still, I could sit here now and in 15 minutes catch your likeness so you could recognize yourself in the mm. drawing. So I got that up to quite a high level. Um, so I don't think there's any difference between figuration and abstraction. I actually don't believe in the term abstraction. The whole thing is psychic and alive and creative. It's not abstract. What's it, what's it abstract of, you know? Um, I think that's a formal visual term that's mm. meaningless to me. Um, yeah, you walked me through uh, the ox herding very quickly. It's in one of your um, hand-bound books. And uh, it seemed to me, just through that quick, read of it that it's describing a hero's journey it is the the ox is the self mm. uh self lost seeing the ox seeing the self the ox captured the ox tamed mm. the ox ridden home ox forgotten self forgotten and there's another one i'm forgetting which the marketplace. Well, that's the end, the, the end one is returning to the marketplace with helping hands, a, uh, a guru and a small boy returning to the marketplace with helping hands. Hmm. There's a couple more in there. Oh, yes, one, the one before the end is uh, a view of nature, you know, trees and streams and stuff, hmm. pure. So that's, it's a parable, you know, it's, it's a uh, Chinese parable. Hmm. And now... So Lu Lewis Hyde is my author, and he's just published A Primer of Forgetting, Forgetting and Remembering, a very, very important book. Hmm. 
So now you're at you're 84 years old. Where are you in that journey of ox herding? Well, I'm returning to the marketplace with helping hands. And these are my legacy years. You know, I have 240 handmade books made since 1961. <laughs> uh, some point in working these books, I looked at them and realized they were an oeuvre in their own right. So I got in touch with bookbinders and geared them up. And uh, they're all very different. They're very individual. There's a lot of writing in them. Um, so uh, my legacy years is, is uh, America and New Zealand. Uh, I have a large reputation in New Zealand. I have museum shows and publish books and get royal honors. Um, so I think that's where I'm at. I mean, I'm very conscious of being old for the first time in my life. And I was with a psychologist about nine months or a year ago, and he looked at me and said, you know, Max, you're not coping, coping with your age. He said, you're acting as though you're 46. Hmm. He said, you're actually 83. So that sort of aged me overnight. You know, I came hmm. home and felt, you know, I looked at my body and, oh, <laughs> this is, you know, a little further along the line than I thought it was. <laughs> so I was acting like I was 46, whatever that's like. That's midlife, you know, midlife. I'm there next year, so I'll, <laughs> let, I'll let you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> whatever that looks like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Forty-six was a year of great turmoil for me. It was mm. turning from uh, certain behaviours to new behaviours. Because mm. I'm an only child, and I lost my father when I was ten, so I'm very, very self-invented, mm. uh, and that's constantly changing. And what happened when my father died was I started reading. And I read voraciously. I read and read and read. And uh, my mother started buying suitcasefuls of secondhand books. And I started reading them. Mm. You know, Biggles Flies East, Biggles Flies West, pirate stories. Uh. So uh, when I got my first uh, job at 15, I was a office boy wrapping parcels and delivering things around Auckland, ladies' coat suits and frocks. <laughs> I was going to a lending library three shops up from my office, and it was two pennies a book to borrow it for a week, two pennies. And I started reading uh, Mickey Spillane and, and Marlowe, you know. Yeah. And I read them for about a month, and I read them all. And then the woman behind the desk looked at me, and she said, you know, Max, you should go across the road to the public library. <laughs> and I went across the road, and there was French literature, American literature, English literature, Russian literature. And I went ape. I went ape. I st you know, I, I've never stopped reading, but I read voraciously. And I thought for a while I might be a writer. So I bought a type portable typewriter. It was italic. It had a red ribbon, and I didn't know how to change the ribbon, so everything I wrote was red, <laughs> which, you know, says the painter that was coming. Hmm. And um, I wrote a couple of short stories, but they weren't very good. But then I fell in with a Canadian writer who was a real writer, and he's the guy who took me to the painter, who took me to the potter, 
And um, I became a painter when my wife came home from the University of Toronto where she was getting an honors degree in honors English with Northrop Fry, a very, very famous mm. scholar. Uh, she came home and I'd done a red Conte crayon drawing of my face looking in a mirror. And Barbara looked at it and said, you're a painter. Mm. I said, yes, I am. And that was the moment. And that was very unlikely because I was trained as a businessman. Mm. Very yeah. unlikely. You know, I mean, I, at, at, you know, in school, I was towards the top of the classes. You know, I was, I was bright, but... Um, uh, you know, drawing at school, I got like one or two out of ten. I was hopeless. Mm. Uh, so I taught myself to draw. And I taught myself to paint. Mm. This, uh, you know, this has come up a couple of times, this uh, saying yes in the moment. And when I look around at your paintings, I see a lot of, I see yes with each one. There's like a, a commitment to what wants to happen. Uh, just say mm. say yes. Is that have you seen that as well, a theme in your well, life? Well, that's very good that you say that, and um, I think I'll call one of my new paintings "Yes." <laughs> <laughs> that's very good. Um, it's uh, James Joyce, Ulysses. Yes, she said. Yes, 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 she said. Yes, that's mm. anima, mm. anima saying yes. You know. Anima never says no. So, um, you know, a, a male is at the mercy of the muse. The muse is everything. So, you know, um, it's not a question of being aggressive or, or uh, stealing or overpowering somebody. It's a question of being warm and loving and sympathetic. Um, because you, you, you really have to caress paint and caress the brush and caress the canvas to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. you, you can't be fighting it. And not, not in my case anyway. So the Quatrefoil, 1983 to the present, how many years is that? Uh, 30 years or something? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the Quatrefoil. 35 years or something. You know, and, and I mean, I will die painting the Quatrefoil. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. And I've painted them from 15 inches to 120 inches. Yeah. yeah, there's something. Um, I mean, we're we're talking here about masculine and feminine anima animus. There's something about the 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 creative impulse needs some constraint, like it needs a a form to engage with, right? And I see that in your paintings as well. Like they're they're very free, but it's also constrained. And I think it needs to be in some way. And you're talking about um, interacting with mm -hmm. that particular form, whether it's the quatrefoil or this massive uh, wheel shape that's behind you right now, or a, or a rectangle. And somehow finding freedom even in the masculine rectangle. Well, what, what you're talking about is framing. And um, my feeling about the edge or the framing is, first off, I was born in a country that's at the edge of the world. Mm. And uh, New Zealand is a landmass bigger than the United Kingdom. It's 1,200 miles long in three islands, but it's surrounded by the Waitemata and the Tasman Seas. It's surrounded by water. Mm. One coast is wild and the other coast is calm. Mm. And on the wild coast, people drown. 
Um, so framing is important. So the quatrefoil gives you a frame, the rectangle and the square tends to have leftover areas in the four corners because I think of the right angle, but framing, and when I look at a painting, the right-hand edge is the past. The middle of the painting is the present, and the left-hand edge of the painting is the feminine future. So the painting goes off, off the left-hand edge into the future. That's mm -hmm. the way I look at it. And I'll tell you this story. When I was uh, seven in Standard One, uh, we were taught to write cursive and uh, we were given a pen and a book and we were told to write uh, in the left hand margin there was a one inch red margin down the left and move to the right so I started on the right and moved to the left hmm. so the teacher came over and said and gave me a note home to my father that I'd done this and my father beat me and uh, I went back to drawing from the left to the right. And immediately I started painting. I started painting in the top right-hand corner, mm. and I paint from the right to the left. And I think that's simply because I'm right-handed, but there might be more to it than that. It might be like starting in the past and going towards the future. And this seems to be like this, going back to the, the healing journey, uh, having that impulse literally beaten out of you and been forced to conform in order to make it as a child in that kind of environment but then reclaiming that original impulse when you found yourself as an artist when you said yes to your wife i mean it just uh it's the perfect story I yeah think. it is it's it's circular because for me everything's circular time's circular there is no beginning and no end uh you know i feel we have endless lives Mm. Um, I feel that uh, dying is going to be like changing garments, <laughs> not going to be any big deal. Um, I mean, there, there's apprehension about getting old because you're wondering about your facilities and, you know, will you keep your locomotion and uh, will you keep your mind and stuff like that, let alone uh, your finances, you know. It doesn't pay to be poor in this country when you're old, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, yes, there, were, there, were, there was a, a serious reaction to my childhood and the constriction in my childhood. I remember uh, at my primary school, I was top of the class. There was a girl who was very bright and we were fighting to be top and I usually won, I was top of the class. And then I went to a very, very elite boarding school for two years and I never got higher than about 12 out of 40. The guys were just too bright. They were too bright. Hmm. And they'd had uh, algebra and geometry and Latin and French for a year longer than me. But they were too bright. And, um, I, I, you know, the three top boys in the school, I, one's in dementia now, the other died in a ski accident, and the other's a prominent doctor in Auckland. But uh, then I went to high school, and I was, once again, up towards the top, few... What was that all about? Uh, it was, you know, and then I, then I hit bookkeeping and uh, I couldn't do the left-right. Couldn't do it. Mm. Just, it just, just wouldn't go. Wouldn't go. Yeah. It was, and my uh, niece who's staying here is a doctor and she gave me the term for that. It's not dyslexia. There's another term, but mm. I don't remember what she said. Um, but, you know, so I don't know finally 
that it was so terrible that I was taken out of high school when I was 15. I think probably high school and uh, the business world was probably pretty similar for me. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You, you said you, you talked about how you found your way to Eastern philosophy and religion and you found yourself uh, living in a Jewish family. And both of those cultures read from the right to the left. And I just wonder, you know, you're talking about the e eternal soul. And I just wonder if there's something in your past lives uh, that has come through in this way that in our culture would be seen as some kind of dysfunction uh, like dyslexia. But uh, I just wonder if there's something more mysterious going on than just something neurological. Well, you know, I follow, uh, amongst other things, Christmas Humphreys, who wrote Karma and Rebirth, mm. and he wrote Walk On. He was a magnificent Buddhist. He was head of the Buddhist Society in England, and um, I believe in karma. So, you know, I'm a result of all my previous lives, and the fact that I'm a painter, and I've been a painter for 55 years, and I've been happily married for 55 years, it certainly isn't pointed out to my childhood. I don't think it's got anything to do with my childhood. It might have something to do with how nourishing the two women were in my life that looked after me after I was 10. And my mother protected me from my father before I was 10 a bit. But I think the past lives is, you know, it's, I think it's a huge factor for us human beings mm -hmm. because, you know, we're, we're just not totally physical beings. We're I mean, you and I have met in, in a certain sort of spiritual plane today where we've become fast friends instantly. And I, I, I experienced that with a few people. Like there's a man in New Zealand, a knight who's uh, a beautiful man, and he and I just fell into each other in one day and mm. we're going to be lifelong friends, you know. Yeah. And so when that happens, you can't sort of explain it's it. It's inexplicable, yeah. yeah. But it does happen if you're open to it, right? Mm, like, yeah. it's there for us. Yeah. And I, I just, uh, whenever it happens to me, I'm just struck by the, the wonder of it, you know? And uh, it gives me faith that there is something more. And we're just playing a small part in it all. Oh, yeah. Well, there's, there's endless more. Yeah. I mean, there's the universe. I mean, if you know anything about how we were born out of the sea from a slug about three inches long, yeah. you know, and the millions and millions of years that's taken. I mean, this is not something to be uh, uh, glossed over lightly. Yeah. Just talking to you about this, um, it makes me excited to see what's next even, you know, like it makes me excited about the possibility for death. Uh, which is, seems like it's somehow wrong for me to even feel that in our culture. There's such a kind of death fear. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, you're not supposed to talk about it. You know, I wear two. I wear a power shell. Power is uh, sacred to the Maoris. And you, I wear a power shell and a New Zealand cow bone. I'll go and get them and show them to you. And, uh, you know, people have huge reactions to them sometimes. Hmm. overreact why am I wearing and you told me the story about your t-shirt you know so yeah 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 no it's it's a buried element and uh, have you ever seen a dead person no well sometimes there's an open coffin I've seen two and one was cosmetically made up and looked fine and the other was 
shrunken and looked absolutely terrible. Mm. So there, were, there is no doubt the person has departed. Yeah. The person is not there. That is absolutely implicit. Mm. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Yeah. They've uh, just shed that that costume. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I think you know I've taken enough of your time today, and uh, I I want to say thank you, and I'm just really grateful that you said yes <laughs> to my request. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Thanks so much, Max. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or sharing it on social media. If you're looking for support on your medicine path, you can become a Patreon subscriber and have access to hours of yoga practice resources, podcast extras, and a lot more. You can find out more at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. If you'd like more personal support, you can book an online session with me at brianjames.ca. Thanks so much for listening. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. Until next time we meet on the Medicine Path. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.